Philippians chapter 1, and uh, we've been talking about uh, this letter really deals with the, the theme of the book is joy, Christian joy. It's really neat to see somebody who doesn't know Christ, and when they come to Christ and you see that they have that inner peace, that inner um, joy that the Lord gives us. And the whole theme of, of uh, Philippians is really the book of, of joy, but um, or the, uh, is the theme is joy. But uh, in, in, especially in verses 12 through 26, it's really talking about uh, joy in ministry, you might say. And uh, I just want to read that for us this morning, verses 12 through 26. Actually, we'll just read down to verse 17. But um, I'm not going to read the whole thing this morning. But in, in verse 12, he begins, Paul writes, But I want you to know, brethren, that things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this, yes, I, I, in this I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. The, the key point of that section of, ver of Scripture there, verses 12 to 26, is right there, the last verse we read. Uh, in this I will rejoice. Uh, yes, I will rejoice. Um, he wrote that statement, Paul did, in the midst of some very uh, difficult uh, circumstances. And in spite of his circumstances, he rejoiced over his ministry that God had uh, granted him. And, you know, a lot of times our joy, the, the, the joy a believer has, uh, is really there in spite of our circumstances, isn't it? A lot of times being a Christian is not easy. It's, it's not uh, um, fun sometimes. It's difficult. Uh, a lot of times there's circumstances that creep into our lives that we wonder, boy, God, why did you allow this to happen? But we should still maintain that inner joy. And I think that really a believer's uh, maturity level can really be judged by, uh, you might say, what steals their joy? Because there are certain things out there that can take that joy away. We've talked about some of them. But we have to remember that joy is the fruit of the Spirit, right? Of the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God. And it's the fruit of a Spirit-controlled life. And so as long as we're controlled by the Spirit, we're going to have that inner peace, that inner joy that, that Paul talks about. Um, Paul tells us that we should rejoice always over in, in uh, Philippians 4, 4, and also in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16. And in all circumstances, we have to stop and, and realize that, you know what? God's Spirit will produce that joy in us, no matter what we're going through. And some of you this morning may be in a, going through a hard time, a difficult time in your life, something that's uh, heavy on your heart, maybe a loved one's ill or a uh, loved one's ready to pass away, or maybe you're dealing with your own sicknesses or health or financial or relationship issues. Whatever it is, uh, God doesn't want you to not be joyful in those circumstances. And that's what we're going to talk a little bit about uh, this morning. And uh, we should uh, not allow circumstances in our lives to make us sullen or make us sad or make us defeated. 
um, anything like that. The only one thing that a lot of times will steal our joy uh, is sin, and that's legitimately so. Um, in other words, I think if a believer is in sin, if they're doing something knowingly that God that displeases God, that joy that they had in Christ uh, is not going to be as evident as it would be if you're living a holy and pure life. And that's why the psalmist in 51.12 says, Restore to me the joy of thy salvation. See, it's not that the joy is, is not there. It's just that its presence is almost clouded up by sin. And so, as believers, when we sin, that's why 1 John says, you know what, we should come to Him and we should uh, confess our sins because He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Um, it'd be one thing if God, if we were going to go uh, tell God that we sinned and He was ready to um, judge us for those sins, that would be one thing. You probably might not want to go make that confession. But knowing that God has is, is already forgiven us our sins as believers and that we're secure in Christ, then we should be willing to go and confess uh, those sins to Him. Remember when you were young and you did something wrong, and maybe you had to go and apologize and tell the truth or you know, confess that, that sin, whatever it was, disobedience, or you did something. I remember when I was in high school, I had one party at our house. That was the only party I ever had, but it was a doozy. And uh, my brother-in-law and sister had gone out of town and uh, I wasn't a Christian at the time. And I remember that Friday going around school. Our heart, our, we live in a small town in Pennsylvania. And I remember going around just saying, hey, big party at the house tonight, Converse House, out on the thing there. And, and uh, I told everybody. I mean, there was people at that party. I didn't even know who they were. And we live in a small little you know, town. It was a small high school. And uh, I remember I had to work that night at a grocery store. And... Um, I worked till about, I think it was 8 o'clock. I got off a little early. But I just opened the house up at like 5 o'clock and let my friends in and had them set up everything. And, you know, and we had some alcoholic beverages there and stuff that we shouldn't have had. And, uh, and I remember saying, just keep everybody downstairs in the basement and we'll be fine. Don't let them. Because my brother-in-law was a dentist. Okay. So he had his dentist office in the house. So I'm thinking, I don't want people getting in all that. So I get home about 8.30 from work. And sure enough, my friends were faithful to the word. Everybody was downstairs in the basement. And I remember driving up to the house and seeing cars parked along Fairview Drive. And I'm thinking, I wonder why cars are parked there. And I remember panicking when I couldn't even drive up my own driveway to the house. And we have a long driveway. We have probably like a quarter-mile driveway. It's just double-parked cars all the way up. And I'm thinking, oh, no, what did I do? <laughs> you know, like I said, it's not like people couldn't look across the street. We live kind of out on the outskirts of town, but there was folks right across the street and say, oh, something big's happening there. And, and I remember thinking, oh, no, boy, I'm in trouble. And, and I remember going up there thinking there's probably people throughout the house, but they weren't. They were all either outside or down in the basement until Steve came home and, and uh, practiced his hospitality. And, I mean, there was people throughout this entire house by the end of the evening. And I remember at the end of the night, the next morning, waking up not in a very good state of mind, and everybody was gone, and a couple of my friends had stayed over. And, and I remember looking at the house, and it was just in shambles. I mean, there was stuff everywhere. Uh, the basement floor was sticky with stuff that was spilled on there. It was just not good. And I remember thinking, okay, we've got to clean this place up. And we're trying to clean the place up and everything. To make a long story short, my brother-in-law and sister came home, I think the next day, Monday, and, uh, or Sunday. And uh, I remember them saying, oh, well, how was your weekend? Oh, it was fine. You know, it's worked and, you know, I had a good time. Just, you know, 
this worked. And, oh, you know, <clears throat> my sister <clears throat> didn't take her too long to figure out what had happened at the house. And so she asked me the first time, you know, so did you have anybody over? Uh, no, no, not really. It's lying right through my teeth. And I'm thinking, this is stupid, you know. And uh, she goes, so you didn't have any friends over? I mean, you know, if I was your age, I'd probably have some friends. You know, and I'm kind of getting the gist of what she's saying. Like, I know something went on, but I didn't know how much she knew. And so I, well, you had a couple friends over. So, you know, so I started kind of the confession process. Well, it, it took me almost two days to tell her the truth. And, you know, it, I mean, they realized, you know, what I'd done. I mean, the, the minute they, they drove up. But, you know, there was something in our relationship in those two days when I was holding that back and uh, not kind of expressing the truth about that, that, you know, it just wasn't the same. And I'm really close with my sister, but it wasn't the same. And I remember finally saying, yeah, I had a party, and, and I don't think I really even told her the extent of the party, but I'm sure the whole community did. So it wasn't, a, it wasn't a, 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 that big of a secret. But the odd thing was is I remember that our relationship was affected adversely. It didn't mean that she wasn't my sister anymore, but because of that, that you know, I sinned against her. I lied to her, and, and until that was taken care of, our relationship really wasn't, um, you know, the way it used to be. And see, and that's what happens when believers allow sin to creep into their lives, and, and you know, that joy, that, that, that kind of oneness that we have with the Lord. It's not that we're not forgiven for that. It's not that God still doesn't love us. He doesn't turn his back on us if we sin. I mean, our sins are forgiven. He sees us as righteous as his son. But our relationship is affected somewhat. To say that it wouldn't be would be, would be crazy. And that's why the, the psalmist says, Restore to me the joy of thy salvation. But with that having been said, nothing short of sin should really steal our joy from the Lord, uh, from ourselves, the relationship that we have. Um, you know, sometimes change, confusion, there's trials, there's attacks from the world. There's desires, there's conflict. All these things are in our lives, but none of those things should steal that joy that we have with the Lord. As a matter of fact, in John 16:33, our Lord says, you know what, when you follow me, when you become a Christian, when you uh, commit your life to following me, he says, in the world you will have tribulation. That's a promise from our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, he, he said, you know, hey, we want you to follow. I want you to follow me. That's what Christ said. Follow me, but you need to take up your cross. You need to deny yourself each day. And so when he said, in the world you will have tribulation, that wasn't just something he was saying to console somebody or to kind of you know, kind of tie them over for the time being. That was a promise. And so if you're a true believer, you're going to have tribulation. You're going to have trials in your life. And see, and, and the way to understand that is, is not to fight against that. I mean, we're all going to have things in our lives that affect us adversely. But how do we deal with them? once we know they're there. Do we embrace them as from the Lord? Or do we fight against them? And say, why, God? Why are you doing this? Even in James, when we went through James on Wednesday nights, um, it says, consider it all what? Joy. All right? When you encounter various trials. In other words, when you encounter, the idea is different colored kind of trials. In other words, all trials aren't going to be the same, are they? Um, you know, you might go through one trial in your life and, and deal with it and you move on and you think, okay, boy, I'm glad that that's over. Now we can move on. And then all of a sudden it settles in and you realize, well, wait, there's something else. There's another trial there that we have to deal with. And it, it, and it never ends here on earth where there's always going to be something around the bend. So if every time a trial comes into your life, your joy goes out the window, you're going to be living a very miserable Christian walk. And I think that that's... It, 
part of the problem with some, some believers, frankly, is they don't understand what it means to be filled with the Spirit. So they're trying to generate all this on their own. They're trying to generate an excitement for the Lord. They're trying to generate a passion for the gospel and for souls. And they're trying to generate a, 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 a heart for ministry. And so they're trying to get in, do all this stuff, but they're doing it all in the flesh. You know, and, and, and that doesn't work. Because sooner or later, you're going to burn out. And uh, I remember, you know, a, a lot of times people come to me and say, you know, you just need to slow down. Because, you, you know, you're going to burn out. You're going to burn out. And I thought, well, there's some truth to that in a way. I don't think I'm as, as excited as I was when I first got here. But, you know, eight years ago or whatever it was, I kind of toned down a little bit. But you know what? I haven't burned out. And I think that, you know, when you enjoy what you're doing and when you enjoy serving the Lord in, in whatever capacity, it's not, a, it's not a burden. It's something that, boy, you wake up every day and say, man, how is, is God going to use us today? How is God going to use me this week? How is God going to, you know, uh, touch somebody's life through me? And it's not, it's not all about us, but it's God allowing yourself to be a vessel that God can work through. See, and that's what was, you know, it was kind of neat this past week because, you know, it's, it's a pretty big undertaking with, with vacation Bible school. You have parents coming. They're expecting certain things, uh, you know, for their children and everything. But you know what? God's always faithful to raise up a team of people who have a heart for ministry, have a heart for children, and, and are willing to serve. And see, and that's key to any church, not just in children's ministry, but anywhere. It doesn't matter if it's, you know, cleaning up or it doesn't matter if it's cooking for a barbecue. It doesn't matter if it's helping in Sunday school or nursery or ushering or playing on a worship team. You know, we have to make sure that we always check our motive. Why am I doing this? Am I doing this because somebody expects me to do it? Or am I doing this because, you know what, I really enjoy it. I really love doing this. Um, and I think that sometimes uh, we've, we'll find ourselves going, you know, I wish you know, I didn't have to do this. And sometimes we have to do things that we don't like to do, right? That's just ministry. I mean, that's just the way it is. But on the other hand, we should make sure that we do it with that joy that we have in the Lord. Because if we don't, you know what? Even ministry can become a trial, ongoing trial. Um, I remember talking to one of our, our, in another church, talking to one of our junior high leaders, and they were leading a Bible study. And, you know, they indicated that they really enjoyed it. And I had a chance to talk to them. It was a couple one time over lunch, and uh, I just sensed from them that, you know what, they're doing this because they think that if they stop doing that, somehow our relationship would be different. You know, if, you know, I was a youth pastor in the church, so they thought if they dropped out of serving in the junior high, that somehow, you know, it would be have an adverse effect on our relationship. Um, and so I kind of sensed from them that they were doing this out of obligation. And it wasn't until I finally asked them, I said, do you really, I mean, do you really enjoy doing this? And at first it was, oh, yeah, you know, it's, it's a challenge, but, you know, kind of that way. But after I talked to them a while, they opened up and they said, you know, yeah, every week, I mean, I mean, we're just praying that someone would, God would raise somebody up so we can get out of this ministry and do something else because we really don't like it. You know, and, and it was coming across some little bit to the kids and things like that. And, and so it's very important to understand that when we're involved in ministry, even that, something good, can become a trial. Okay? It can be something that, boy, we just don't look forward to. It can be almost an affliction in our life. And that's where, that will take away the joy just like that. And see, that's where it's, it's important to make sure that our focus is on the Lord when we're doing these things. It doesn't matter how big they are or how small they are. We have to maintain 
our, our joy. And the way we do that is by maintaining God's perspective concerning trials. And when you stop and you think about it, you know what? God sees the beginning from the end. He says that, that you're in my hand, you're secure, I'm going to take care of you. So whatever happens in your life, God knows about it. And you can almost say that it's, it's from his hand. You say even a bad thing. Say I was you know, driving home uh, this afternoon, got in an automobile wreck and broke both legs or whatever. Yeah, you know what? God would allow that to happen. Maybe he has his own purpose. Maybe he has somebody in Kaiser that he wants me to talk to or who knows what. You don't know where God is going to go and how he's going to work and how he's going to use you. But the main thing is, is to be open to that. And see, and that's the, the theme here in Philippians. Because if you stop and you think about the Apostle Paul, his, his circumstances weren't some flowery uh, circumstances. I mean, he, he really was in uh, chains when he wrote this. He was literally in chains. And uh, he, he wrote uh, while he was in Rome. And he wrote to the Philippians here. And he wanted to do that for, for many years. And he had written the, uh, the Roman church. And he said, you know, I really would like to minister to the, the group at, at, Philippi, at Philippi. And, uh, and perhaps even use Rome as kind of an outreach uh, to reach out to the rest of the, the, the folks here. Well, I think when Paul wrote that in Romans, he didn't realize what God was going to do. You know, sometimes we pray for things and God brings them to pass, but he doesn't bring them to pass the way we think. You know, we pray, God, you know, give us more patience. Well, one way that God's going to give us more patience is what? Trials. Tribulations. That's right. And so when we go through those, we have to say, hey, you know what? Really, this is an answer to my prayer. God is making me stronger through this, and we need to embrace that. You stop and you think about his, his uh, just the whole circumstance. Instead of uh, uh, going to Rome on his own prerogative and setting up a, a ministry there, he actually went there in chains as a prisoner after being shipwrecked. And so the Apostle Paul didn't have, have an easy life, you might say. It was, it was rather a struggle. And you can read in Acts 21, 28, it talks about his journey to Rome and how he begins after his third missionary journey. And uh, uh, he, he wanted to make sure that he was living in obedience to the law. And so he went to the temple to participate in the ceremony there of the day and he was accused there of, of teaching against the law and violating the temple um, rules and he was attacked by a mob and uh, he might have been killed but he was rescued by the Roman soldiers and they kept him in custody to make sure that he was safe from his uh, Jewish enemies and as time went on you know there was really a point of contention between the Jewish element and the Roman authorities at the time and he went before hearings of Governor Festus and Felix and King Agrippa and all that. And eventually he appealed to Caesar and was dispatched by ship to Rome. Now he was going exactly where he wanted to go, but maybe not under the conditions that he wanted to go. And so he arrived in Rome and he spent another two years in prison, Acts 28.30 says. And during that time he wrote what are known the prison epistles, which we're re looking at this morning, including Philippians. And so... Sometimes God works things out, not always in the way that we think He should or the way that we uh, desire Him, but He does work it out. And that's a little background on Paul. Now, when he got to Rome, he was under what they called house arrest. And what that meant was basically he was in prison, uh, but it was a little, a little different. He was always attached to a guard, 24-7. He was handcuffed to somebody. He could go out even sometimes and uh, teach or whatever, but there was always a guard there. There was always a Roman soldier uh, attached to him. And uh, he was allowed to have visitors. He even uh, 
He was able to stay in a private residence on occasion. But he always had a soldier with him. He was allowed to preach and teach. But he always had a soldier with him. And so, you know, when you stop and you go back, and he's writing this under those conditions. And the Philippians hear, wow, Paul got arrested, and now he's in handcuffs, and he's thrown in prison. Oh, how bad is this? Well, Paul's writing them in verse 12, and it's kind of the, 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 the important part of this chapter, because when he says there, but I want you uh, to know. See where he says that? But I want you to know. It's, it's really kind of what he's saying here is, listen up. This is, this is really important here. Um, it's kind of like when you're talking to somebody for a while and they say, you know, well, the reason I'm really talking to you is, and then they, you know, they, they get into what they really want to talk to about. Well, that's kind of what he's doing here. He says, but I want you to know, and then he, he calls them brethren. He calls them brethren. And that's really what he, where his passion was. Uh, he, he really loved the Philippian church. He loved other brothers and sisters in Christ. And he wanted them to understand in verse 12, it says that the things which happened to me actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. Well, what's he talking about? He's talking about his arrest. He's talking about his imprisonment. Um, he's talking about all the, the things that are going on, having this guard chained to him 24-7. All that. I mean, can you imagine having somebody chained to your arm 24-7? I mean, I just can't conceive of that. I mean, we, you know, we, we're kind of a small house. And, and there's occasions when my wife and I, you know, we find ourselves in almost opposite ends of the house doing our own thing. We like our own space. There's nothing wrong with that. But I mean, can you imagine just somebody around you 24-7? You know, you think of, I mean, private things that he had to do, go to the bathroom, whatever. I mean, the guard's there. I don't know how they worked that out, but, you know, whatever it was, I mean, you know, it, it, that would be difficult, especially if you enjoy any element of, of privacy. And I think that Paul... You think about the what he did for you know he was a he was a minister of the gospel. I'm sure that he, he desired to spend times in solitude and prayer and quietness before the Lord and and, and all that. And, and he's always having somebody there with him. And yet he never whines about it. He never complains. He never says, "Oh man, I wish this guy wasn't here." He takes his circumstances and he really turns it around and looks at him from God's perspective. And he's saying, "You know what? For whatever reason." God has me in this situation, and he must have it here for a reason, because he says the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. For the furtherance of the gospel. And you know what? That's really his, his passion. If you, if you look throughout, throughout the, uh, his writings, he's always talking about the gospel. He's always, he always wants to uh, share the gospel with people. Um, in Acts 20, 24, we find him saying, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself in order that I may finish my course and the ministry which I have received from the Lord. And, you know, he's kind of life, possessions, clothes, all that stuff, reputation. They were all yielded up to one goal, he says, to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And to uh, the Roman church, he wrote in Romans 1.15, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. In 1 Corinthians 9.16, he said, Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. So he really felt under compulsion to preach the gospel of Christ. Um, do you ever stop and ask yourself, what, 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 what do you have as a passion in your life? Um, what makes you excited uh, what really gets you, you know, going when you engage somebody in a conversation? You know, as believers, one thing, it, it should be an opportunity to share the gospel. 
it should be an opportunity to share what Christ has done in your life, what Christ has done um, you know, for you since you've been saved. Because people need to hear that. Uh, a lot of people don't have the opportunity to come to church and read the Bible and, and do all those things. And so the only, you know, as close as they're going to get to that is you, as an ambassador for Christ, going out and touching their life in somehow. Um, now this word here, progress, when he says that uh, the things which happened to me actually have turned out for the furtherance or progress of the gospel, it, it really means to move something forward in spite of the obstacles that are before it. In spite of the obstacles before it, it's still going to go on. It doesn't matter whether it's dangerous or there's distractions, whatever it is. One commentator, Barclay, says this, uh, that it was specially used for the progress of an army or an expedition. Uh, it's a noun form of a verb, which means to cut down in advance. It's the verb which is used for cutting away the trees and undergrowth and removing the barriers that would hinder the progress of an army. And so if you stop and you think about that, that's really what's important to a army is to make sure that they have a clear... Uh, that's a funny little tune. <laughs> they, they have a clear uh, uh, shot to the enemy. And so a lot of times, what do they do? When they go to war, who do they send in first? They send in the bombers, don't they? And they just kind of carpet bomb everything to make sure that they, at least when our troops go in there, that there's not a lot of hindrances between them and the enemy. And that's the idea here, is when it says that the gospel would progress, that it would progress in spite of these distractions or these obstacles. And the obstacle in his life was that he was under house arrest. Um, the gospel here, obviously, it refers to the message of salvation. He mentions it in verse 5. He mentions it in verse 7, 12, 16, 27 in chapter 1. And uh, it, you can kind of sh see how much it was on the apostle Paul's heart. And, uh, you know, today, I think a lot of people misunderstand what the gospel is. You know, they think that, you know, if you tell somebody, well, God loves you, that's the gospel. That's not the gospel. The gospel of Christ, the full gospel of Christ, is a message that not only includes exposure to the law of God, because if you don't expose somebody to the law of God, how are they going to know they're a sinner? You know, if there's no, no uh, speeding sign, no, no speed limit on Jefferson... Well, you know what? If there's no sign there, how can I be accountable to know, all right, uh, what the what the uh, the speed limit is? And that's why they have all those little funky little signs out there. You know, you speed, you get a ticket, and all these other things, kind of trying to make it fun. But it's not fun when you get the ticket. In spite of the signs, it's not a good thing. But the one thing here is that that Paul wants to point out is that he has joy in spite of all these troubles, and the gospel is going forth, um, and that's where really he had this joy in spite of all the circumstances uh, that that were around him. I think that if you stop and you think about your own life, is that true about you? Is that true about me? That sometimes when we're faced with obstacles in our lives, do we still have that joy of the Lord? Or do we get defeated and we get discouraged and, and uh, kind of, um, you know, just go home and, and hold up and, and don't be involved in ministry and all sorts of things? Um, you know, that shouldn't be the attitude. Uh, it should be one of embracing those things. And he says here that all this stuff that happened to me actually furthered the gospel in spite of it. And then in verse 13, look at what he says. Uh, he writes, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard. It has become evident to the whole palace guard. 
Now you stop and you think about this. Um, that's not a, a stretch of anybody's imagination here. He, he was attached to a Roman soldier 24-7, and usually they would work in like six-hour shifts. So he would have four soldiers every day hooked up with him. So you could see where they would probably, you know, who's got duty with Paul today? Oh, I got the, you know, 12 to, 12 to uh, you know, whatever shift, blah, blah, blah. And, and they'd probably go through the whole regiment of soldiers rather quickly. And he was exposed to all these soldiers. See, and even in that, God had a plan. Those soldiers needed to hear the gospel. I mean, he wasn't uh, restrained from teaching. He wasn't restrained from preaching. He just had to have a soldier with him wherever he went. And so all those soldiers were, were exposed to that. They were exposed to the gospel. And who knows how God used that in their life. But he says there that the whole palace guard it became evident to them. In other words, what became evident to him? That is, his chains are in Christ. That he's, that he's a, a slave not of the government there. He's not a prisoner of the government, government but he's a prisoner of Christ that my chains are in Christ. Um, and that's one thing sometimes when you stop and you think about your own life and you think about how God works in different ways and, and you know, different experiences that come into your life, that's a good attitude to have, I think, is that, you know what, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a slave to Christ. I'm a prisoner of Christ. And so whatever happens to me in this life, it's, it's going to be for His glory. It doesn't matter what it is. It could be the most horrible thing that comes into your life as a believer you know what? You can either shake your hand at God and be angry, or you can say, you know what, God, I don't know why this horrible thing happened to me, but God, you must have a purpose. You must have a plan. Because you wouldn't allow something like this to happen just for the fun of it. Because it's not fun. And so I think all the palace guard picked up on Paul's attitude. You know, he wasn't whining. He wasn't complaining. He wasn't, you know, constantly just, you know, making petition for his release, all this thing. He embraced where he was. And sometimes that's the best attitude to have, uh, is to look at it. And even sometimes at your work, maybe you have a, a different circumstance at your work, and, and a lot of times, you know, we, we go in there and we think, well, I'm going to demand my rights, and they can't treat me this way as an employee, and you go on and on and on. You know, sometimes it's best just to embrace it and just allow the love of Christ to shine through. And you know what will happen? That will get their attention. And, uh, you know, usually God works that out. Um, you know, I never understood sometimes uh, some Christians who are always, they're always either boycotting something, they're always petitioning something, they're out on the corner or whatever. And I'm not saying it, it doesn't have that place, we don't have that place, but I don't believe in civil disobedience for Christians personally. I think that we're called to obey the government until it uh, interferes with, with the Word of God and His command to us. But I think that a lot of that, you know, you go out on the corner and you hold a sign. There's a guy here in, in Redwood City that has, you know, abortion pictures plastered all over his van. And, and he's been doing it for years. I just don't think that does a lot of good. I think, if anything, it overexposes people to it and it doesn't mean anything anymore. I think the way to affect change in a society, or even in your workplace, is to affect change in a heart one by one. You know, start praying for the people you work for. Start praying for the, the, the members of the city council. Start praying for different uh, folks in our city government or state government or, or uh, uh, national government. And ask that God would affect change in their hearts one at a time. Because that's how it's going to happen. Um, any revival, that's how, it, that's how it happens. 
And so here's Paul. He's in this circumstance. He could have been whining. He could have been complaining, but he wasn't. And he realizes, you know what? I'm here because God wants me here. His chains are in Christ. And so even within the, the, uh, the prison here, he was affecting change. And outside the church, in, in verse thir- or outside the church, in verse 13, he says, you know what? Change doesn't just have to happen within the four walls of the church. Here he is, he's in prison, not really where he want to be, and God is still using him uh, in a mighty way. Uh, sometimes, you know, we find ourselves in places that maybe we don't want to be. Maybe you're at a stage in your life where right now you're looking at your job and you say, you know what, I, I really wouldn't want to work, but I have to work, and, you know, just finances, whatever it might be, and you're saying, you know, boy, I just wish I wouldn't have to be here in this place. Well, you know what? God wants you there in that place. And it may be a lot more than just getting a paycheck every week or every other week. It may be He's called you to that place because maybe there's people in that work environment that need to hear the gospel of Christ. They need to see somebody who's living an authentic Christian life before them so they can come to know Christ and realize that they too can have their sins forgiven and understand what it means to walk in the fullness of the Lord. God's, God's plan is so much bigger than ours. And so Paul had a, a ministry to the guards there. He had a ministry even beyond that to the household of Caesar and so forth. And I, and I think that even uh, sometimes God works in such a way that we, we, we don't realize what God wants to use us for. And in verse 14, he says, And most of the brethren in the Lord, most of the Christians, he says, have become evident, have become confident by my change. And much more bold to speak the word without fear. What he's saying there is even though I'm in prison and I can't do what I'm called to do, I can't go out and freely walk around and preach, people know I'm in here and they know the life I'm living. I'm not in there whining and complaining. And so these guys aren't running to Paul's outside the jail holding pickets and saying, leave Paul out, you know, and all that kind of thing. They're not doing that. They're, they're out what? They're busy preaching the gospel. Because that's what Paul continued to do even though he was in chains. And sometimes God puts us in a situation, not only so that we can be used in that situation, but so that we can be an encouragement to others. Um, a lot of times, when we go through a, a hard time in our life, with tribulation, a trial, whatever it might be, God has a bigger purpose than just for ourselves. I mean, that's part of it. God wants to grow us more mature and, and help us embrace that trial. But I think sometimes... You know, have you ever gone through a trial and when you're going through it, you're learning things and, you know, the trial's over, it's concluded, whatever. And then down the road, somehow God brings you across uh, into somebody else's life who's going through the same trial that you just came out of. Has that ever happened to you? And all of a sudden, they're sharing with you, yeah, you know, I have this situation. And they start talking to you. And all of a sudden, you're realizing, wow, you know what? I just came out of that. And, and I'm still here. I mean, God sustained me through that. I can be an encouragement to this person now as they walk through this trial. You know, there's a, there's a lot of people that when they're really obedient to the Lord and they embrace those kind of things, God wants to use them. And so I don't know what you're facing this morning. I mean, you know, only God does. But realize that God has a purpose. He has a plan for that. And even though here Paul was, he could have been discouraged, he could have been whining, he could have been complaining about the food and his, his situations and everything. But you know what? He wasn't. He was working for the Lord in spite of all the circumstances. And that's what we're called to do. Very clearly, that's what we're called to do. Now, look at what he says there at the end. He says, most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains. In other words, when you look at somebody else suffering and their attitude is, is one of, 
a good attitude. They're embracing it with joy. That encourages you. You know, I, I never forget we used to take kids down to Mexico um, when I was a youth pastor. We'd go every year. And uh, a lot of times, some of the kids, they didn't want to go. You know, I don't want to go to Mexico, you know, and help build something or whatever, you know. Uh, just didn't want to do it. But you know what? Almost to every kid, by Friday, we would go down uh, Sunday through Friday. Almost every, every teenager that we took, they were begging not to go home. They didn't want to go back to the United States because they fell in love with the people there. They saw the hardship that these people were going through. Little kids with little dirty faces in the, in, the, in the dirt streets or mud streets, depending on what time of year we used to go down, you know, begging you just for a little piece of candy. You know, and being so thankful, you, you know, you brought something for them from the United States. And by the end of the, the week, they didn't want to go back. Even though on the way home we'd stop at Disneyland and celebrate, you know, and have a good time there, they still, you know, couldn't we stay down another week? And the reason is because they were exposed to somebody who was going through a hard circumstance, but you know what? It's almost like they didn't even know it and they were just joyful anyway in spite of it. And a lot of those kids would come back from Mexico thanking their parents for running water for a toilet that works and, you know, various things. And they began to realize, wow, you know what? The United States is a nice place to live. And they were a lot more appreciative. Why? Because they faced somebody who was going through a hard time. Well, that's what happened here. People outside the prison looked at Paul and looked at the ministry he still had and how God was using him. And they thought, well, wait, we're not even tied to a, tied to a Roman soldier. We're free to go here and there, do whatever. And, and they began to realize, we should be doing more for the gospel of Christ. And they became confident by his change because even though he was thrown in prison, it didn't stop the ministry, did it? Paul continued to minister. And you know what? That's the kind of faith that we need to have. If the police came in here this morning and said, sorry, there's a new rule, you know, no preaching and no teaching and no Bible study, no, we're going to have to confiscate the Bibles or whatever. I mean, what would be your reaction? Okay, here, you know, I don't want to go to jail. I mean, see, I mean, we've got to think about that. We don't, that's not a reality for us in, in, the, in the place we live at today. And uh, a lot of times I think we grow complacent with our, our freedom that we are so thankful for, but we grow so complacent with it, it's, we, we, just, we can't imagine a day in the United States when you wouldn't be able to read the Bible or you wouldn't be able to go to a Bible study or teach or preach the gospel of Christ. But you know what? That day is probably coming. And you know, as hard as that will be, we'll have to make a decision. What are we going to do? Are we going to obey man or are we going to obey God? And are we going to do the right thing before the Lord? Or are we going to do the right thing before men just so that we won't be put in some hardship? And see, when we look at this, we can see that Paul chose to do the hard thing. He chose to embrace his trial. He didn't, you know, okay, I won't teach anymore, just let me out of here. No, he continued to do what God called him to do. And when other people saw that, they thought, well, if God can protect Paul in there and God can still use him, how much more can he still use us? And that should motivate us to speak out more boldly. And you notice there at the end it says, to speak uh, more bold to speak the word, the gospel, you might say, without fear. Uh, one thing that I think is, is probably one of the scariest things to do as a Christian, for a lot of us, is to witness to other people. To share the gospel of Christ with somebody who's either we know is against it, or they're... Uh, we don't know where they're at and how were they um, accepted and, and how do I engage them in conversation about that. And I think that as a church, 
And as individuals, we've, we've really lost a lot of boldness. Um, you know, I mean, even, even personally, I mean, I'm always looking for a, an angle to, to bring Christ into the conversation, but I could do it oh so much more. You know, I mean, there's, there's times down there at, at the coffee shop even that I could, I could talk of Christ a lot more than, than what I do and engage other people in conversation. But, you know, on the other hand, you don't, wanna, you don't want people to feel awkward. But the thing that we have to be careful of is sharing the gospel with somebody is awkward. You're not going to get around that. I think if it's not awkward, if they don't feel awkward or you don't feel awkward, then you're not sharing the gospel. Because basically the cross, it says, is in offense. The message of the gospel is really, uh, it's an offense to people. You know, who do you think you are? You know, you think that your way is the only way and you go on down the, down the road there. I mean, it's, it's an offensive message sometimes. Because the first thing of the gospel is that we've all sinned. Well, when's the last time you told somebody they were a sinner and they're like, hey, great. You know, I mean, no. People don't want to hear that, especially in the society we live in. You know, it's all about, boy, doing a great job and excellence and all this stuff. And when all of a sudden when you tell people, you know what, you're nothing but a sinner. They have a hard time with that. Remember, I knew a pastor who lived down in Oceanside. He pastored a church down there and he said, you know, he goes, I, I minister to Marines. And he said, these poor boys are so confused by the time they come in my church. So you stop and you think about it. They're usually, they're right out of high school. And before they go to boot camp, you know, they're the big man in the town. They're going off to be a Marine. You know, they're walking around with their chest pumped out and everything, thinking they're just hot stuff. And they go to boot camp. And, and what do those, you know, those, those uh, uh, guys at boot camp, man, the drill sergeants, they just tear them down. You know, within a week, they, they, they don't even think they're, they're better than a worm. You know, and that's what has to happen. And they go through a process of basically taking everything away from these guys. And if you've ever seen the things on the military channel, they always got to talk like in the third person, you know, this Marine. It's just kind of an odd thing. But it's all done for a specific purpose. And by the end of their 12-week boot camp or however long it is, they come out of there and they made it. And they go to their graduation and, and they come home to their hometown. And I mean, you know, they're walking above the ground. I mean, they, they're just so proud and everything is yes, sir, no, sir. Even if they're talking to their, you know, relatives a lot of times, it's, it's, it's that kind of a thing. It's, it's made that much impact on them. And he said, and then they get their first deployment out to Oceanside. And, uh, you know, we go out and we meet them in different areas, do street evangelism. And here are these Marines and we got to take them back to the point that, you know what, you're nothing. <laughs> They're so confused because they, they, they went into the Marine Corps thinking they were something. They tore them down. They were nothing. By the time they graduated, boy, you're a Marine now. And now all of a sudden, I'm nothing but a sinner and I need the grace of God. Who do you think you're talking to? And he said, and then you see God touch their hearts and they break before God. And some of these, you know, just, I mean, they could break a tree in half, some of these guys, he said. And yet their heart is so tender. And these are the people that are working with our kids and, and teenagers in our churches and, and th their hearts are just broken before the Lord. And yet, they're still the person they are. Well, that's, that's what has to happen to somebody. They have to realize that they have a need of a Savior. And without that expressed need of a Savior, you're, you're not going to become a Christian. That's why when, somebody, when you ask somebody, well, how long have you been a Christian? And somebody says, all my life. You've got to stop and say, wait a minute, that's impossible. You're not born a Christian. You know, you're not born a Christian. Uh, we're born a sinner. And there has to be some point in time where we bow our knee to Christ. I'm not saying you have to dictate when exactly that is by the clock or by the day. 
because I think for some of us it is a process. But I think that, you know, when someone says, oh, I've been a Christian all my life, you might want to stop them and say, well, when did you commit your life to Christ? Because that has to happen. That's a very real thing. You have to express your need for a Savior or you will not receive the forgiveness for sin that He promises. And see, when they saw Paul continuing ministering, even though he was in his chains, and they saw that, that God was using him, they became confident. And they began to speak out more boldly the word without fear. I pray that we would, even this coming week, look for ways that we can preach the message of Christ in a bold way, in a very bold way. It's kind of interesting, this week we had some kids and we were talking about Christ in one of the Bible studies downstairs in one of the rooms. and I was explaining that that Jesus was God and we were talking about his perfection and how he was sinless and um, somebody pointed out to me well don't forget about Mary because I say Christ was the only one that committed no sin and I kind of let it go you know I didn't say anything first <laughs> but they were kind of persistent you know, well no Mary was sinless too and you know and I, I didn't address the rage I said well no that's not true but you know and I talked to him later outside of the presence of the other kids. But, you know, it's so important, I think, you know, we could have just let that slide. You know, eh, they're going to believe what they're going to believe. But you know what, it's very important that we, when we teach the gospel, that it's, it's the true gospel. And uh, we want to make sure that people understand that, you know, we do need a Savior, and, and we are sinners, and we do need to be saved by the grace of God, and we do need to repent of that sin. We need to come to a point in our life where we turn away from the life of sin that we have, and, and uh, before a holy God, acknowledge our dependence upon Him. Because if you're depending on yourself to save yourself, uh, you're, in a, you're in a world of hurt. You're in big trouble. Um, because it doesn't work that way. It's for, by grace we're saved through faith. Well, let's close in a word of prayer. And, uh, and then we'll uh, be dismissed with a song. And uh, if you have to go home and get your goodies or come back, whatever, pray that you'll hang around for the picnic. And I've uh, got some good stuff cooking up for you. So let's just bow in a word of prayer. Father, we thank You for Your Word this morning. Lord, we thank You for the example of the Apostle Paul and how he ministered even though he was in the midst of hardship. And Lord, we do pray that uh, You would uh, encourage our hearts. Lord, that we would become more confident when we see others in other countries even going through hardship and the church flourishing as they go through trials and tribulation. And Lord, we pray that uh, the freedom that we have here in the United States, Lord, I pray that we wouldn't take it for granted, but Lord, we would use it for the furtherance of your gospel. Lord, that you would give us a burden to preach the message of the gospel, not only from our lips, but through our lives as well. And Lord, we thank you for today. those that participated in helping uh, get ready for VBS and, and those that will be serving this uh, next week. Like I said, we have about 83 children coming, so uh, we'll have our hands full, but that's what makes it fun, right? <laughs> makes the time go quicker, I think. We're going through uh, the book of Philippians, um, and we started a couple weeks ago, and we're in our seventh message this morning. So if you go ahead and turn over to Philippians chapter 1, we'll uh, see what God has for us this morning as we look into His Word. And we're focusing in on verses 9 through 11 
So I just want to go ahead and read those for us this morning, and then we'll uh, look at our message. Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 to 11. And this I pray, Paul writes, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and in all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. You know, there's a lot in those couple little verses there. It's kind of odd. Usually I, people tell me when I preach I'm always favoring this side and I'm looking over there. But now there's nobody there, so it's really going to look stupid this morning when I go like that. I don't know why I do that, but something I picked up in school or something. Scan the audience, you know. It doesn't matter if anybody's sitting there or not, I guess. Uh, but in this prayer that Paul is praying uh, for the Philippians, he's praying for the, the Philippian Christians, we remember, and he focuses on essentials for sound spiritual growth. And maybe I should just turn the pulpit like this. That would help me. Um, but he's focusing on, on, on elements that will help us grow spiritually in our lives. And, you know, a lot of times in the Christian world today, there's a lot of things that you can get involved in. There's a lot of fluff out there. You can read books on anything. You go into a Christian bookstore, and they have books on any subject possibly. But, you know, a lot of times we forget to stay in the book the Word of God, and grow. make sure that we're growing spiritually. And so Paul's prayer for them kind of indicates that there's five things that he wants them to uh, be aware of and have in their life as they live their, their Christian life. And I think it applies to us as well. And he focuses on these elements. And I don't know if you remember what they were. We gave them to you last week. We just covered the first one. But they were love, excellence, integrity, good works, and glory. And we covered the topic of love last week. And in fact, some ways you could sum up the whole Christian experience, the whole Christian life with those terms that I just read. Love, excellence, integrity, good works, and glory. But as we discussed last week, it's kind of an upside-down wedding cake because you know, uh, if you turn it upside down, it kind of goes out like that. That's, and it's wider at the top and thinner at the bottom. And you have to understand that each one of these elements build upon the other. And we discussed how important love was last week. And we gave the whole service and we just talked about the love of God and the love that we should have for one another. And that's where in verse 9 he says, In this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. And we pointed out that, that basically all the Christian life begins with love, right? I mean, you stop and you think, for God so what? Love the world. If He wouldn't have done that, we wouldn't be sitting here today. Everything in our Christian experience must be built on that foundation of love. And we're not talking about some emotional feeling. We're talking about a real love that's a choice to love. And love leads to excellence, and excellence leads to integrity, and integrity leads to good works, which leads to praise and the glory of God. And so you can kind of see how they build upon each other. But love is a great foundation for Christian living. And uh, we want to kind of just review a little bit before we get into our message. Um, it's probably the most surpassing virtue of the Christian life. And the, the, the greatest distinctive in our lives as believers is the love of God as he makes that that, that love come out. I'm going to read a little thing here. The, the, the late Dr. Barnhouse was a commentator and great Bible teacher and expositor. And he, he tells basically 
uh, he used to be on the East Coast, about a Japanese girl in one of his works who uh, worked at an airline desk in the lobby of the Imperial Hotel in Tokyo. And he, he goes on with the story. He says, on one occasion, when, it, when, when he happened to be in that hotel at the airline desk, uh, he spoke to this girl who was fluent in Chinese, Japanese, and English by necessity of her job, obviously. And uh, uh, in this open and unique kind of way, this, this Dr. Barnhouse simply asked if she were a Christian. And uh, she said, no, I'm, I'm Buddhist. And uh, after, you know, they, they talked a little bit, and um, she said that she had heard of Jesus Christ, and that she had heard about this book called the Bible, the sacred book, the Holy Bible, we should say. They're calling it the Koran, the Holy Koran now, so we should call it the, the Bible, the Holy, the Holy Bible. Uh, but she never read it. And she didn't know anything about it and didn't really understand the whole Jesus thing personally. And uh, Dr. Barnhouse goes on and he said that he asked her a very telling question. And he said this, you're a Buddhist, right? And she said, yes, I am. And he asked her, do you love Buddha? And her reply was, love? She kind of had a question on her face. I never thought about love in connection with a religion. Isn't that sad? And, and challenged by her kind of pathetic reply, he unfolded to her the reality of Christian love. And that our God is not a God to be, he's to be revered, but he's not to be feared. He's a loving God, and he reaches out to a lost and dying world with the life-giving message of the gospel of Christ. And he told that girl that no God in the entire world is loved except the true God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And he pointed out to her that in her countries there were statues everywhere of deities and they were all fierce monsters guarding temple gates and, and kind of uh, helping the people attempt to somehow appease their deity who's angry at the folks. He reminded her that a religion, they, in her religion, they burn incense. And the reason they do that and they offer sacrifices is to appease the, almost the, the cruel whims of these deities that they say they worship. Buddhists do not love Buddha. And Buddha does not love Buddhists. If you stop and think about it, Hindus do not love their deities and their deities do not love them. Muslims do not particularly love Allah. There's no great affirmation that Allah loves them. And it's, it's kind of a unique thing only to Christianity. That this, this aspect of love raises itself up and the sum and substance of everything that we know is Christian, it boils down to that one thing, love. The love of God. God loves us. We love God. And in that context, we love each other in a fellowship. And we're loved by each other in a fellowship. And that's the real distinction of Christianity. That one word, love. The Bible says that we love Him because He, what? he first loved us. Love is the greatest thing. Love is the, kind of the, just the reality of the Christian experience. And so true godliness, true spiritual growth has to begin with godly love. It has to start there. We looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 13 last week where Paul writes very clearly, if I speak with the tongues of men and even of angels, but do not have love, 
I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge and have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, what's he say? I'm zero. I'm not. I'm nothing. I'm zip. If I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. See, love is very unique to Christianity. And without it, we cannot please God. It's impossible to please God. A Buddhist monk may light himself on fire, but if he doesn't have love, that love born of God, it's useless. Nothing makes any sense. Nothing has any value unless there's first love there. That divine love that can only come from the God, the Creator, and our Lord Jesus Christ. And so love is that surpassing value in our faith. And so Paul is praying here in verse 9 that he wants their love to abound more and more, he says, in real knowledge and all discernment. He prays for our love uh, to be increasing. See, he doesn't pray that God would give us love. We already have the love. And we talked about that last week. First of all, it's a divine love, but it's also a de facto love. It's just a matter of fact. If you're in the body of Christ, if you're a believer here this morning, you have that supernatural love within your, within your heart. It's not something you have to pray for. Now you want to make sure that it's increasing more and more. Your love for the Lord, your love for the, the fellowship, your love for brothers and sisters in Christ. But you got all the love that you're ever going to get. He says, the love of Christ is shed abroad in our hearts. Now he uses a very distinctive word here, agape, which is not an emotional thing at all. It's... It's a very love of the will. It's a love of choice. It's not of emotion. So it's a de decisive love as well as being divine. And we also talk about it being the dynamic love. In other words, it increases, it grows, it changes. And it's rooted in our spiritual understanding, he says, and knowledge. And it's also a discerning love. We looked at that. So love is this, is this uh, will that God puts, us puts within us. He puts a divine love within us, and it's, it's by choice that we choose to love others. It's not an emotion. It's really a duty as a Christian. Now, there's emotions tied with love. Don't get me wrong. It's an act of selfless sacrifice in behalf of someone else. And so, you know, the world's view of love and the Christian view of love are totally different. Totally different. And we never want to re reduce the love of God down to some emotional feeling or response. And the key to, to real divine love is selflessness and humility. Selflessness and humility. You know, we're all in this together, right? We're all sinners saved by grace. There's not one person in this, this room that can say, oh no, I'm a notch above everybody else. It doesn't work that way. We're all in the same lot together. We all have the same Word of God. I don't have any corner on the truth. You know, we all come to the same Bible, we read the same Bible with the same help from the Holy Spirit to illuminate our hearts and our minds. And so, don't ever feel that, that somehow you know, you're, you're outside of, of that... Uh, 
you know, realm of God's love because you're not. We all need it, and we all have it if we're believers in, in Jesus Christ. If we've committed our lives to Him, if we've come to Him and repented of our sins and said, Lord, you know what? I'm not doing a real good job working this thing out down here, and I need some help. Can you help me? Your word says that you'd forgive my sin. I need that forgiveness. And you come to Him. You know, I guarantee you that's a decision that you'll never regret. Ever. Sometimes it doesn't make a whole lot of sense even when you're making that decision. But it's one thing to live a life just for yourself. And it's another thing to live a life for your Lord and Savior who's forgiven you and transformed you into a new creation in Christ. And all of a sudden you have a whole new world open to you that was never even there before. Couldn't see it. But when you got saved, all of a sudden you began to understand God's Word and you be, all these pieces of the puzzle began to fit together. and You began to grow spiritually. So the first thing that we looked at last week was love. Well, the second one there, he says that their love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. And then look at verse 10. He says that you may approve the things that are excellent. You notice the sequence there? First, he, he talks about uh, you know, a sense of priority there. The first is, is love. And that's why he says, and this I pray, or so that, some translations are reading uh, read that way. And it, it links the two together. And it shows that there's a progression here. You must have love first. And if you have love, then you can move on to excellence. See, where a person is totally taken over by the love of God, they're dominated by the love of God, there'll be a corresponding almost desire to seek the good things, the excellent things. Because he's controlled by the love of God. So verse 10 there says, so that or and this, that you may approve the things that are excellent. You can't do this without that love that we talked about. You have to have that first. Now that word approve, it's an interesting word in the, the original language. It's very familiar in the New Testament. It's used over and over again. In, in classical Greek language, it was used a lot of times to determine uh, uh, metal. When they had a piece of metal, they wanted to determine whether it was genuine and whether the properties that made up this like, gold bar, was it really gold or was it not? And they would use this and they would have a, a way of testing it, of approving it for its purity. It was used to test money to be sure that it wasn't counterfeit. In Luke 14, 19, it was used of the testing of the quality of animal. In that verse, it's talking about oxen. And in Luke 12, 56, it's used to kind of sort of the assessing of the state of the sky, analyzing the weather. So that word approve always means to kind of make sure that it's, it's right, make sure that it's pure. So it has to do with verifying the purity of something, to prove something. And this is what he's saying here in his prayer. He says that they would have the capability to evaluate and determine the things that are excellent. That you may approve the things that are excellent. Uh, in other words, he's kind of saying you'll know the difference between things and be able to determine which is most important. It's a matter of priority. See, a lot of people can tell good from bad, right? Most of us can tell good from bad. If you, if you go to uh, buy a car, and you go to the used car lot, and they go, oh, this is a great car, it looks wonderful. 
But you get in and it doesn't start. You can probably say, you know, this is a bad deal. I'm not going to buy this car. I mean, it wouldn't take a rocket science to, scientist to figure that out. But see, he's not talking about that kind of differing value here. He's talking about not telling the difference between bad and good, but telling the difference between good and what is excellent. And it takes a little more judgment. It takes a little more able ability to discern. It's the ability to distinguish between the good and the best. And that's really what, when, when you begin to understand what is good and what is best, that's when God really begins to unfold your life. And he shows you really where, where you should be spending your time, what you should be doing. Because we can all do good things, right? We can all. We, you know, we could, we could have a million things on our calendar if we wanted to as a matter of priority and scheduling. But you know what? What does God want us to do? He wants, to do us, he wants us to do the best, the excellent things. And so it's a matter of focus of our energy, of our time. And I think that it's, it's important that we, we realize that, that we're not to live our lives in some knee-jerk reaction. We're not to walk around, you know, just kind of flying by the seat of our pants. He wants us to know where we're going. He wants us to have a direction. And part of that process, if you take any class on leadership or management, anything like that, you know, it, basically it involves priorities. It boils down to being able to choose what's the best over what's good. And then doing that and applying yourself in that area. We shouldn't be just like a, a bouncing ball bouncing through life here and there. We should have a direction. We should understand what God's purpose is for our life on a daily basis. There was an interesting study done, one commentator writes, and uh, basically they had a group of people and they brought them in and they said, we're going to give you brand new concepts, things that you never even saw before or heard before. And so a man came in and he gave these people a new concept, something. Something they never heard before in their lives. And they asked, he asked these people to believe it. They never heard this before, but he asked them to believe it. And knowing that in asking them to believe it, <clears throat> they would have to <clears throat> excuse me, set aside some of the, the things that they had previously, uh, previously thought were true. And the results were very interesting. Now think, you're just in a room, a guy comes in, tells you something, and says, now believe it. Where would you fall in that? Well, here's how it broke down. 50% of the people believed it immediately without even thinking. Without even thinking. And, it, you know, they didn't even question it. I, I can't even fathom that. 30% um, of the people didn't believe it immediately uh, without thinking. So 30% kind of held out a little bit. 15% of the people wanted to wait a little while before they made up their mind, but they asked for no clarification or no further information, and then they made up their mind. Only 5% of the people analyzed all the details and finally honestly came to a conclusion. Now, the results of that test goes something like this. If you reverse it, it's estimated that 5% of people think. <laughs> That's a scary thought, huh? 5% of people think. 15% of people think they think. 80% of people would rather die than think. And you know what? A lot of times that's how our world is. That's why you can go out there and, and you see people, sometimes even from pulpits, teaching things that are so far out in left field. 
it, it really gets under my skin sometimes. But what gets under my skin even more is that people are lining up at the door believing it and signing on to whatever the, the heresies that are being taught. I mean, it's, it's, it's really, it's an interesting world we live in today. And that's because a majority of people don't know how to approve what's good and what's excellent. You know, any false teacher, anytime, would not just teach total heresy. They're not going to do that. They're going to basically cloud their heresy with a lot of good teachings. And so you may listen to somebody for weeks sometimes and say, wow, that guy's a pretty good teacher. And then all of a sudden he comes to a subject or a topic in the Word of God and, and he teaches something that's totally whacked, just out in left field. And you say, wow, how, how can that be? How can that be? And we have to be careful. We have to be able to discern these things. We can't just line up at the door and say, yeah, whatever that guy says must be right. You know, I thank God that I'm in a church that if I got up here and said, you know what? Um, this morning when I was shaving, Jesus appeared to me. <laughs> I mean, there were people, probably even during the service, that would go, hey, wait a minute. Isn't Jesus up at the right hand of the Father? How could he appear to you? Isn't that what the Bible tells us? That's what the Bible tells us. See, God never works outside His Word. See, there's, there's, a, there's a belief today that, oh, no, you can just take the Bible and set it aside and say whatever you want. But that's not true. People think today, well, God can do whatever He wants. He's God. No, He cannot. That doesn't mean He's not all-powerful. He is. But He's constrained by His Word. You think God can do whatever He wants? Can God sin? No. Can God lie? Can God cheat? Can God steal? No, He cannot. Because He's limited by His character, by His nature, and by His Word. And we always have to believe that. Most of society, someone said, is like the caboose. They're always looking backward. And all they're able to see is what goes by. See, that's not how God wants to live a, us to live our lives. He wants us to look forward what God is going to do in our lives and create in us. That's why in verse 6 he said, being confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. It wasn't even a question in Paul's mind. And so there's a, he, he wants them to pursue what is excellent. And sometimes to do that you have to put your mind over your mood, don't you? You have to be able to say, you know what, I don't feel like doing this, but you know what, it's the best thing for me to do. Sometimes when I have a lot of stuff to do and the desk is piled high, I look at it and go, I don't want to do anything. And I'm thinking, you know what, if I do the hardest thing first, maybe that will motivate me to keep going and I'll get this work done. And so that's what Paul prays for them here, that, that they would abound in real love, and that they would approve the things that are excellent. Don't settle for second best. That's why in Philippians 4, verse 8, he tells us that you, you've got to look at whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good report, he writes. And if there's any excellence, he says, and anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on what? These things. See, it starts with your mind. You are what you think. And you've got to get beyond that point of just reacting to things. You know, I know that sometimes just my personality, you know, we'll be maybe in an elder's thing or we'll be in 
some counseling with John and Ken or whatever and, and a third party and uh, we'll get together and, and the person who's there visiting with us will start to talk. And, you know, in my mind I'm kind of boiling this thing down. I'm thinking, okay, I kind of already understand where this person's going. I don't need to hear the rest. And I'm just biting to just chop them off. Just, okay, here's what you need to do. Just be quiet and listen and then everything will work out. You know, but they have to go through this, you know, thing and they're, they're talking about the problem, whatever it is. And, you know, and I'm always looking at John and Ken because I kind of take my clue from them because they're, they're more patient than I am. And so a lot of times, you know, Ken will sit through an entire meeting without saying anything. And I'm thinking, aren't you going to say anything? You know, and then when everybody's kind of done, he'll kind of summarize something or he'll say something very wise. But see, sometimes I don't have the physical and emotional restraint <laughs> that they do all the time. So sometimes I get myself in hot water because I'll speak out of turn or I'll just let my emotions get the better of me. And, you know, I'm reacting. All of a sudden I'm not acting. I'm reacting. And God doesn't want us to react. He wants us to act in our lives. Ephesians 5, Paul says that we should walk as children of the light, learning what is pleasing to the Lord. See, it's a growth process. And down in verse 15 of 5, he says, Be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. And so don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Once again, it's think, think. We've got to think what the will of the Lord is for us. 1 Thessalonians 5.21, it says, But examine everything carefully and hold fast to what is good. No, he says hold fast to what is best. That's what we're called to do. Because Christian character at its highest level is kind of divinely implanted in us and it's this growing love controlled by the truth of God's Word. And when it's controlled by the truth of God's Word, then we're able to pursue those excellent things. Then all of a sudden we're able to see, well, you know what? This is a good thing, but this is the best. And this is what God wants me to do. So we don't want to have knee-jerk reactions in our Christian life. Stop and ask yourself, are you approving the good things or are you approving the best things? Are you in a place where you know what God has for you and what His plan is unfolding for you? Third characteristic there in, in Philippians 1.9 it's integrity. There's love and excellence, and that leads to integrity. In verse 10, he says that you may be uh, sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. That little phrase there, in order to be, uh, that, you, that you may approve the things that you may be sincere, that little phrase, it's, it's, it's called the Hina Clause in the Greek, and it, it means basically this. It means that it's a clause of purpose. And what it means is you are to love so that you can pursue excellence in order that or for the purpose of being a person of integrity. See, so many times we start at the place of integrity. And we missed out on the love and, and we've missed out on the excellent things and we're trying to start there. And, and God said, no, this is backwards. You have to start with love and then you go to excellence and then comes integrity. And that's why he says there, in order to be sincere, verse 10, and blameless. That word sincere is a very interesting word. It means genuine. But it has the possibility of a couple different roots when you study it out. And some think that it's, it's rooted in a word that means to sift. Like when they used to sift through grain and they, they, they sift it out so that they could uh, remove all the impurities from the grain. And what came through the, sift, the, the sieve there was pure grain. 
And there's another possibility that this word has a root in, and that it means basically that all the impurity of your life has been sifted out so that you're pure, 100%. And on the other hand, it could also have its, its root in two Greek words, one meaning son and the other meaning to judge. And literally, it's talking about having been judged by sunlight. And you remember, you've probably heard this before, that, that back in their culture, they would, they would have a, a, a way of judging whether or not a pot, a clay pot, was pure clay, or if that guy built, you know, made that clot, clot, pot, formed that pot and uh, you know, put all that time and effort in it, then he takes it to the kiln and he bakes it and it becomes hard and, oh, there's a crack in it. What do I do now? Well, they, usually they wouldn't throw them out because they were greedy people and they were insincere people. So they would take candle wax and they'd take wax and they'd fill the crack and then they'd paint over it. So when you looked at that pot, it looked totally fine. And so when you would go to shop for pots, Back in their culture, you would take that pot, and if it was in a store or in a storefront, or what, you would take it out to the sun, and you would hold it up to the sun. And when you held it up to the sun, you could see if there was any cracks in there that were covered with wax, because the sun would shine right through. Because that pot wouldn't be any good. The first time you used it, the first time you put it on a fire, what would happen? <laughs> the wax would melt, and you'd be in big trouble. Your soup would go, you know, kaput. So when he's talking here about this word sincere, that you would be sincere, he's really talking, it literally means without wax in, in the Latin. And that's exactly what we had just talked about. That's where they get the, the meaning of that term. See, and a life needs to be held up to the sunlight to see whether or not any flaws are, are falsely covered up by the wax of hypocrisy. That's the idea. That's what he's getting at. And that may be well the, 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 the root of this word sincere, meaning without wax, a purity in your life. And you stop and you think about it, just when they used to hold that pot up to the sunlight to see whether there's any wax in it, so our life needs to be tested as well to see if it has integrity, to see if we have no flaws, that there's nothing we're trying to cover up just with wax. So that the first time a trial comes, we fall apart. <laughs> you know, you stop and think about any church, not just this church, any church. There's people even here this morning that are sitting here thinking, boy, I hope everybody thinks that I'm a, I'm a pure pot. That there's no, nothing that I'm trying to cover up. But you know what? If we were all honest, there's all parts of our lives we'd want to cover up. All of us got some some wax somewhere. But if there's sin in our lives, if there's flaws in our lives, we try to cover that up, you know. We dress up and we come to church, we put a smile on our face, and somebody says, how was your week? Oh, it was glorious, brother. And we talk in these, you know, like just like we're in heaven almost. <laughs> Knowing that we just got out of the car in a big argument with our family. And, you know, I mean, it's just crazy sometimes. We play these games. And, you know, if this isn't a safe place, where, can, where is one? You know, if this is not a safe place to come and say, hey, you know what, I had a rotten week. You need to pray for me. Or, I mean, when's the last time you heard a couple walk in, you know, hey, how are you guys doing? Rotten. You know, we just got a big argument, and now we're here in church. You know, you don't hear that. You just don't hear that. And sometimes 
God puts some heat to our lives to melt that wax out so that, that, so that we can be restored and reveal that crack and reveal that split. And there's some people that go a long time without even realizing that they patch that crack up. A lot of baggies, a lot of things in their life need to be sorted out. You don't want a life like that. You want a life that's pure. You want a life that's marked by integrity. You want to be sincere. You want to be pure. You want to be without flaw, real, genuine, honest. Somebody used the illustration, if you're making bread and you took the, took the bowl and you threw the flour in and you threw the uh, whatever else, what did they make, eggs and, and maybe some water or something, oil, and you just threw it in there, would that make bread? That would not break, make bread. What, what we need to do is you've got to take your hands, you've got to mix it up or use a mixer, and you mix it up, and every part has to be touching. Okay, You can't just throw these things in there. And that's kind of the idea here of integrity, that when we come together, all of our parts are touching. There's not something we're holding out. Everything has to be touching everything else. That's integrity. There's no cracks in the jar. Nothing is covered up with the wax of hypocrisy. We're not hiding some secret sin or some flaw. That's why Jesus says very clearly, or the, the, the Word of God says very clearly, that, you know what? We all sin. And when we sin, what are we to do? Confess. Go to the Lord and confess our sin. He was faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, He's not up there with a big hammer saying, yeah, go ahead and sin. As soon as you do, I'm going to squash you like a bug. That's not the God we serve. We serve a God who is, is willing and able to take our iniquities and our sins and that, are, that are as dark and wash them as white as snow. And He does that on a continual basis. Paul says in Romans 12.9, I want to have a life without hypocrisy. In 2 Corinthians 1.12, Paul talked about the confidence he had in his own sincerity. In 2 Corinthians 2.17, he said that we're not like others, to peddle the Word of God, but to preach it sincerely. There was a genuineness in this man's life. And that's what really I think that, that we're, we're called to be. And so I think it's, a, it's not only a, a personal integrity, though. I think that it even goes beyond that. I think it's a relational integrity because he says there, first of all, being sincere. That's the personal integrity. No cracks in your own life. But then he says, and blameless. Or without offense. Some versions read. In verse 10, we're to be sincere and blameless. And that word means not causing others to stumble. That word blameless or without offense. That's a relational integrity. See, the first, the first one, sincere, that's your own life before God. God sees what cracks are in your life. Don't try to hide them from others. Get them patched up. But now he says... Not only that, but blameless. Be blameless. And that's talking about a horizontal or relational integrity between each other. So we're to live a kind of life that doesn't cause others to stumble. Paul teaches so clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and also in Romans chapter 14. And he talks about the fact that we're not to cause someone, another brother or sister, to stumble, to be offended. And then in Romans 14, we're not to cause someone to stumble or be offended. He goes on, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, whatever you do, 
We're to do it all for God's glory, never offending anyone else, not the Jew, not the Greek, or the church of God. We're to be cautious how we live. You know, um, sometimes we think that our, our Christianity allows us just to go out and do whatever we want, whenever we want. I mean, after all, all of our sins are forgiven. Who cares? Well, that's not the case. We're still called to live in subject to God's Word. And God says, be careful how you live. And sometimes, you know, you can look at certain people and you say, boy, that person really has an inoffensive life. They're so consistent. You know, relationally, there's, there's no way they're causing anybody to stumble. Their life looks pure. It looks holy. It looks right. then you begin to look a little deeper and you begin to see other things. Because like I said before, we're all in the same boat. We deal with this on a daily basis. Good way to really uh, uh, look at a person's life in that light is to see who is influencing them. What influences are, are in their lives? Are they godly influences or are they ungodly influences? Because anybody can put on a cover. Anybody can make someone look like everything got their act together. But God knows the truth. That's why sometimes you hear of people prominent, even in ministry, and all of a sudden you know they've fallen, and you're going, how could that happen? Well, because they were playing a charade. They were coming out and pretending to be something they weren't. And everybody bought it. And one day, it, it, it basically caught up with them. And so we need to have that blamelessness, that sincerity in our, in our lives. Uh, don't have the, the, the cracks. And the way to do that is, is really to, to make sure that our lives are not conforming to the world, but are conforming to godly standards, to, to the Word of God. Someone once said, cut, a, cut flower Christians, they use that phrase, cut flower Christians, who are shallow, frail, and often short-lived. You know, you think about it, you buy somebody flowers, and you, they're delivered, and they, they look beautiful, don't they? But you know what? What's happened to them? They're, they're cut away from the main root. <laughs> And eventually, what happens? They die. They die. The, the petals turn yucky and they fall off and make a mess in your house. Then you've got to throw them out. Well, you know, in the same way, sometimes some people have convinced themselves, you know, yeah, I'm connected to the root. And yet, you know what? Over a period of time, you begin to see the petals fade and their life's falling apart because there was never any connection there at all. That's why... Paul said in, in Romans 12, don't be conformed to this world. James 1.27 says, friendship with the world is enmity against God. And even in 1 John 2.15, says, love not the world nor the things that are in the world. And you say, well, you know, it sounds kind of boring. It sounds kind of like you're trying to rain on our parade. No, I'm not. I'm just sharing what the Word of God says. This world is going to pass away and all its fancy things. Nothing wrong with having nice things. Don't get me wrong. But when those nice things have you, when those nice things become a bigger priority in your life than the God that you're called to serve and worship, then we got a problem. 
And it doesn't happen like that. You know, this conformity to the world, it doesn't just happen overnight. There's a process that goes on. And the world is constantly trying to suck us in. They're constantly trying to throw things in front of us that would make us be more like them. And whether you watch TV and look at commercials, whatever it is, there's always things thrown in our, in our line of sight that say, hey, this is good. Go this way. Do this. And it's a process. And the first step in that process is accommodation. First of all, you just kind of tolerate it. You know, um, you kind of you look at sin and wickedness and you kind of go, well, you know, what are we going to do? And we stop being shocked by it. We're not shocked by sin anymore in our society. We're not. We just accommodate it because it's more comfortable. We may think it's wrong. We may even say it's wrong, but it doesn't really shock us. It moves on to the second layer, which is legitimation. When we legitimize it, when all of a sudden it moves from accommodation and we begin to say, well, you know what? This, this is normal. It's part of our culture. I mean, you, you, you think of the, the homosexual movement and all that. Well, you know, it's just an alternate lifestyle. What are you going to do? They were born that way. And you can hear all those arguments. And we have to have hearts of compassion toward those people, toward any people who are outside of Christ. Because they're lost in their sin. And we know the answer. The answer is Christ. But it's not normal. Even though it's part of our culture, we shouldn't say, well, you know, I'm sure God will forgive them. The third level is assimilation. All of a sudden, we begin to have some issues here and we're in real danger because personally, we begin to cooperate with what we see out there in the world. We recognize it. We accommodate it. We're not shocked by it. And then we begin to assimilate it. We cooperate with it. And it just passes off the scene like it's not even an issue anymore. I mean, you know, there was a day, a time in Christianity, and this may be hard for you folks to believe, probably not, some of you are older, but where, you know, immodest dressing for women was a bikini bathing suit, a two-piece bathing suit. That was just forbidden. There's just not, I mean, they wouldn't even go there. And today it's like, what's the big deal? You know, and, and you can see, and I'm not trying to be legalistic, but I'm just saying that you can see how it shifts. I mean, just turn on your TV. Look what's on the TV. We just kind of assimilate into that mode of thinking. And then all of a sudden we find ourselves participating. It involves our actions and our attitudes. All of a sudden you're not shocked by it. You don't mind. It's part of the culture. You understand all that. Pretty soon you're participating in something that's ungodly. You say, well, how did I get here? It doesn't happen overnight. And all of a sudden it boils down to there's, there's no, no difference between you and the world as a believer. And you're going, wow, how can that be? I mean, I'm called to be different. I'm called to be a sojourner in this world, a pilgrim. This, this world is not my home. How did all of a sudden I conform my whole life to the world's standards? We need to stop and we need to recognize that and come back to the Lord and say, God, you know, convict my heart. Help me to have pure thoughts. Help me to set my eyes upon those things that are pure. 
don't know if you ever saw this movie. It's, I think it's called Time Changers. It's about this group of guys that, uh, I don't even know the time, but it might say 1800s or whatever. Uh, they were able to go forward in time. And they went forward in time, and they were very stoic. Uh, I think they went to a seminary or something. And so they were very kind of, you know, I would look at them and go, boy, you're pretty tight around the collar, you know, pretty legalistic. But they were kind of shoved forward into the 1900s. And they were walking around New York City or somewhere, and they just could not believe. Like they were standing in line one time, and somebody swore or something. And this guy goes, thou shalt not take the Lord's name in vain. You know, and he spoke with his accent. Everybody's like, man, what a weirdo. Where'd this guy come from? But it just kind of gave you a picture of how far our society has slipped. And you have to stop and you have to say, you know what? Whatever weakens your reason, whatever impairs that tenderness of your conscience, whatever obscures your sense of God or takes that delight away from spiritual things, whatever increases authority over your body or over your mind, that thing is sin. And we need to repent of it and give it back to the Lord and say, God, help me in this area. The world's subtle. The enemy's subtle. They're not just going to throw us into this overnight. It's a gradual process. And you say here, well, how long am I supposed to live this way? Be sincere and live without offense. Be blameless. Well, he tells us there in the end. He says, until the day of Christ. We're to have integrity until Christ comes back. The day of Christ in verse 6, as we studied that out, remember when we, we talked about this, this isn't the day of the Lord. It's not talking about judgment. It's talking about really trans the transformation of believers in God's presence. It's talking about the reward that we're going to receive. Whenever we see the day of Christ in Scripture, it's always talking about the reward that believers will receive. It's not a day of judgment. Sinners stand before God in the day of the Lord of judgment. There's a, there's a distinguishment there. And the day will come when we see Christ as we sang about. And we'll all stand before Him. In 2 Corinthians 5 it tells us, and we'll receive the things done in the body, whether they're good or bad, it says, to see whether our works are gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or stubble. I don't know about you, but I'm praying that when I get there, there'll be some works that are classified as gold. And then in verse 11, he says, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. The fourth thing there is, is good works in verse 11. Being filled with the fruits of righteousness. That's what it's talking about. It's talking about allowing God to create those good works in your life. It's not something that we wake up in the morning and say, okay, I'm going to make a list of top ten things I can do. Well, let's see. Help an elderly woman across the street. You know, go around the park and pick up trash, witness to somebody. No, it doesn't work that way. These are works that God, His Word says that He performed or He prepared beforehand for us to do. So they're all part of God's plan for our life. And it's just a matter of being sensitive to His calling and to His, His, uh, His working in our lives on a daily basis. We should always desire to see good works produced in our life. And so his prayer is, first of all, you have a life of love. Then you have a life of excellence. You have a life of integrity. And you have a life of good works. The fruit of our life should be good works. If you're a believer here this morning, you say, well, I don't have any good works. I could almost say you're not a believer. 
Because they're one and the same. As you live before God and He's transformed your life, He says that He's going to perform good works in and through you. Galatians 5 tells us the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control. Those are all attitudes. God wants to produce in your life the right attitude and the right action. It says, having been filled with the fruits of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ. In other words, we don't produce our own. Isn't that neat? That you don't have to somehow come up with a list of things to do before God. He says, I got that taken care of. You just live filled with the Spirit each day and I'll, I'll work my will out in your, your life. Ephesians 2.10 says that we are His workmanship, a workmanship of God created in Christ Jesus onto good works which God hath ordained before that we should walk in them. So what are we learning? We're learning that we should bear fruit, but the fruit is the work of Christ. I close with this illustration here. You remember Lawrence of Arabia, and on one occasion he brought they brought some Arabs back to London, and they put them in this this beautiful hotel in London. And they were absolutely blown away. They were Bedouins, in other words, they lived in tents most of their life. And uh, the thing that fascinated most in their hotel room was not the lavish bed and the sheets and just the, the pretty furniture and all that, but it was it just blew them away that they could go over to this sink and turn this handle and water would come out. Because they lived in an area where water was very scarce. And they had to preserve it. And they just realized, you know, whenever they went over there, they, they would turn this faucet on and water would just pour out. And they were just totally blown away by that. And after their stay, when Lawrence packed up these folks to leave, and he was packing up their bags and whatever they carried with him, he discovered that these folks had gone to the sinks and they took off the faucets. And they thought, hey, you know, this will work good where we live, you know, we're just going to take this faucet with us when we turn it on, we'll have water. That was their thinking. Now you say, well, that's kind of ridiculous, but that was where they were. And you know what? I just want to remind you that the issue in your spiritual life is this, is simply to recognize that, you know, you're just a faucet. <laughs> you're just a faucet. Unless you're connected to the pipe, it's not going to do any good. It's not going to do any good. Unless you're connected to the Lord, you know, you can be turned off and on all day long. Nothing's coming out. Nothing. You're going to produce absolutely zero. But when you're connected to the pipeline of Jesus Christ, and you know Him personally, you see Him work, and you, you realize all of a sudden He begins to do these works through you. And that causes you to be humble. It doesn't cause you to be prideful because you're going, God, there's nothing in and of me that, that is causing this to happen. It's you, by your grace. And that's why He says there, to the glory and praise of God. John 15, 8 says, Herein in my Father glorified that you bear much fruit to the glory of God in everything. God has saved us and He saved us to give Him glory. And that's what we're called to do. We're called to do that on a daily basis. Let's close in a word of prayer and then uh, we'll, we'll close with a song and we have some goodies over in the fellowship hall if you want to join us over there after the service. Father, we just thank You for Your Word.
Lord, we thank You that You are a God who uh, loves us and cares for us. And Lord, we pray this morning that as we've sat here and, and gone through this study together, Lord, that we have done a spiritual inventory of our own lives. And Lord, if we see a decline in certain areas, uh, Lord, I pray that, that we would be bold enough to recognize that. Father, help us know that there are no, there's no formulas. There's really no shortcuts. There's no quick uh, gimmicks to spirituality. There's no easy ways. Um, if our life doesn't check out and we don't live up to these essential virtues that we've discussed this, today and last week, then help us to know that you know, we need to get on our knees as Paul did and we pray for the same thing. We pray daily. God, that Your love would abound more and more in all real knowledge and all discernment. Lord, that we would be able to approve the things that are excellent. That we would live lives that are sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. That we would see our lives filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes by Jesus Christ. And Lord, we do all that, that we would be able to give You glory and praise. Help us pray that personally every day. Lord, until we begin to see a pattern in our life going in the right direction. All we have to do is cast ourselves willingly before You on Your resources, on Your, on your willingness to produce those works in our lives. Make us willing to do that. Lord, if there's anybody here this morning that doesn't know You personally, Lord, I pray that You would work in their heart, that You would draw them, that You would give the answers to the questions that they have. Lord, Your Word says that uh, You will draw men to Yourself. And Lord, we pray that that would happen. Lord, if anyone has any questions about their faith, Lord, I pray that they would approach one of us afterwards and just ask us. Lord, we pray for believers here that they would live out the remainder of this coming week, Lord, with a boldness serving You and to walk in integrity before You. And Father, we thank You and we praise You. In Jesus' precious name, Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and... Thank You for this service and pray that You would just bless our fellowship afterwards and during the picnic time. And just pray this now in Jesus' precious name. Amen.